All right. Um, so it's been our habit since we started the class to have um, opening prayer and um, actually um, have a call and response type prayer. So Michael will put that up here, and I will be reading the white. You will be reading the blue. And um, I've not done a very good job of telling you where we've gotten these prayers. And I'm not going to do a good job this morning either because this one's from an anonymous scientist. <laughs> so we don't know who wrote it. Uh, but it was at a conference of scientists, and uh, so we pulled this out, and so we thought we'd let this be our opening prayer this morning. So I will read the white, and you will read the blue. Lord, we know that you as our creator have chosen to reveal to mankind through the study of the biological and physical sciences insight into the processes and the world you have created. Lord, we also know that due to our sinful nature, we have often taken this information you have so graciously revealed and used it to elevate our intellectual pride rather than glorify you. Lord, so we may be humbled before you, we ask that you direct our research to reveal information that may be used to glorify you as our creator. We specifically pray that this information will influence those trained in the sciences and scientific method to come to realize and accept the revelation of your word and the saving grace you offer to all. We ask that your will be done in everything that we do. Amen. All right. So, yeah, um, this past week, um, there was uh, a lot of kind of science news about the detection of some gravity waves. And um, so... Uh, I'll just talk for a few minutes about what this is. So in 2015, I think, is when we actually detected gravity waves for the first time. This was something that was anticipated from um, Einstein's work. It, it began to be seen that it was possible for there to be waves, not just of light and uh, radiation, but there were waves in gravity itself. And from the theory of relativity, we understand that those are waves in space and time. They actually distort the space and time as they move through it. So when a gravity wave washes over you, you actually change shape. Um, now this is so, yeah, it's um, so subtle that it's incredibly hard to detect. And back in 2015, they put online some machines that were able to detect the gravity waves from two black holes colliding in space, um, and it sent out ripples, and they were able to pick these up because these waves in gravity were, I think, a few kilometers long. But they knew that actually across the universe, there are these supermassive black holes. And supermassive black holes are um, like at the center of our galaxy. There's a, a black hole that's something like 4 million times the mass of the sun. And then in the Andromeda galaxy, there's a black hole that's something like 200 million times the mass of the sun. And what happens is periodically galaxies collide into each other and the black holes at the center absorb each other in this incredibly large collision. And that sends out waves rippling for billions and billions of light years. And so it was known that this happened um, and we would expect to see gravity waves coming off of this, but they're so big and so low frequency that it was impossible for us to build something to detect them. These are waves where the crests are tens or hundreds of light years apart, right? These are huge, massive things changing the, the shape of space and time as they ripple through it very subtly. And so to figure out how to pick these up, um, they actually started 
surveying um, something that are called quasars, uh, or pulse, sorry, pulsars. And uh, pulsars are, um, they, they do a little bit like this. They blip in far galaxies, and they, uh, what they are is they act as a metronome. Um, and so people can use them as an incredibly precise clock to look throughout the universe and see um, how events are playing out. And so this is just tapping the time. And um, so there are a number of different kinds of pulse, pulsars, and they're all from these large, massive collapsed stars that collapse in a particular way to become sort of a lighthouse shape uh, beacon. And so they, they light, uh, they send out incredibly large um, burst of radiation in different um, frequencies. And so this is sort of what that actually kind of looks like. It's spinning around, sending out beams on each side. And when the beam flashes our way, we can see it. And it's rotating um, incredibly quickly. So we might see um, this flash um, many times a millisecond. Okay? These are incredibly precise cosmic clocks that are there. And by looking at these, scattered across the, the universe, they were able to detect when there were blips in these clocks. And those blips represented the, the waves of gravity washing over them. And by looking at dozens of these pulsars and correlating their movement, they could pick up these ripples that were going across space and time. And um, what they found was that actually this activity, the amount of gravitational waves, is, um, is more than they thought it was. So not only are there these massive, uh, supermassive black holes colliding into each other, um, there's either a lot more of them doing that, or we're actually picking up ripples from something else. And that is interesting and a whole other mystery. It might reflect something new about the beginning of space and time. It might unlock things about dark energy. It might unlock all kinds of other things. So that's the news this week. We've, we've actually tracked massive waves. And the way that they're talking about it is that we're now able to listen in on a conversation that's been going on for billions of years. Right? So we're able to now tune into this conversation and pick up what's being said by all these um, these entities across the cosmos. So um, that's where we are. And uh, so that kind of leads us to our meditation verse for today. So Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal a pulsar, I'm sorry, a matter, <laughs> and the glory of kings to search it out. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said about this verse. Um, it's actually a favorite verse of people of the scientific revolution. Uh, Francis Bacon says, when he says kings, he means humanity, because God has made humans kings in creation. But it also points to the fact that there are mysteries, right? And we are um, essentially called upon to seek out these mysteries and understand them, that God is actually looking for us to do this and participate in this way. All right, so in the last few weeks, um, we've talked about a number of things. We've talked about, first of all, some scriptural truths. Um, and we've looked at Psalms and Proverbs and the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, verses that tell us that God is creator and that therefore creation is a revelation of God. And given that creation is a revelation of God, that we are called upon, as the psalmist and the proverbists say, 
to seek out the wisdom and the knowledge that God has placed in creation so that we may understand our Creator better and so that we may better apply this to shape our own lives and our community and our society. And so then um, the, the third kind of scriptural truth is that we are creative beings made in the image of our Creator, called upon to imitate our Creator. And we talked about last week the fact that in the, uh, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, as people were going back to Scripture and going back to rethinking some of their theology, they looked at um, some of these scriptural truths and they came to believe in them in a very strong way, and it formed a religious mission to work towards science, driving a large number of clergy to support science um, in a very strong way, becoming scientists, supporting scientists, forming scientific institutions like the Royal Society, which is the longest uh, running scientific institution in history. And they explicitly said that science was something they were called to do for the glory of God and the relief of humankind, um, kind of an imitation of the greatest commands. So we talked about that. And on our kind of trajectory for this class, we had um, intended to go on and talk about, well, what went wrong if science was a religious mission at the beginning of the scientific revolution, then how did we end up in a state today where we don't typically see it this way, right? We see these things as divided and so forth. But I think what we heard from uh, a number of you in the class is that uh, we wanted to spend a little bit more time on Genesis specifically. And so um, we're going to take a little bit of time to, to do that today. We're going to talk about that, uh, about Genesis 1 uh, and 2. And um, and we might, over the next several weeks, bring in some other kind of viewpoints to kind of uh, reflect on as well. Um, so we'll see how this, this goes. What, I, what I'm going to do to help kind of uh, frame this beyond our discussion is introduce a view that you might not have heard of, a view that was actually prominent and significant in shaping the scientific revolution itself. So uh, we'll start by asking this. Um, what question is Genesis 1 trying to answer? What do you think? Who created? Who created? All right. Where we came from. Where we came from? Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. What else? How? Okay, yeah. Who created? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which? Yeah, uh, where? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, no, so is it who created? Why? Uh, who? Uh, wait, what was it? When? Yeah. What was created? What was created, yeah. What's the relationship between God and man? Okay, yeah. Any other thoughts? About Israel. Okay. <laughs> this is a book written by Jewish people for Jewish people. Can't imagine that it has anything to say about that, right? Um, yeah, right. Like we 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 might think this has um, is trying to answer some specific questions for the people of God specifically, right? Um, and their practice of, of their faith. Right? Anything else? I really imagined we'd get a lot more uh, 
different different views from this. But um, I'd say maybe not only just what was created, but at what time period, like within the lifespan of that creation, okay. like as an, created as an adult. Yeah. Okay. Good. Any, any other thing we want to throw on the table here that, that might be in view? Okay, yeah, our place. Yeah, so um, we've had like our relationship between us and our creator, also our, our relationship between us and creation, that's a, uh, possibly in view. Um, yeah, okay, good. I think what it's not trying to answer is uh, our current understanding, what we've been able to, what mm. God has allowed us to understand mm. about the creation. Uh, yeah, what, um, Say more about that. What? Well, I think, he's, I think he's trying to answer in a way that uh, Hebrew people early people could understand. Okay. And it's a beautiful, beautiful answer in that in that regard. Yeah. Uh, rather poetic. So it's, it's not written in our. Could understand. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not written in the language of the Big Bang. Yeah. It's not written in. It's not written in English. It's not written in uh, modern scientific terminology. Yeah. It's written to ancient um, desert-dwelling people, and it necessarily has to be in that language, right? Yeah, it's, it's not an. It's, my, it's not an SOP that like, hey, if you have power to do this, this is the way you do it, right? They want you to do this. They think like, hmm. that's. It's not an instruction. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. What's an SOP? Standard operating. Standard procedure. operating. Procedure. I didn't explain that in emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, so say more about that. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think if you view it as an instruction manual, then you have to view it literally. Okay. Right? It has to be, look, this is, this is what happened day one. Yeah. And your understanding of day one is a day, right? Yeah. And so I think if you view it that way, it really limits what can be contained in that allegory, right? Okay. I would take that to say... But, you know, it's not the instruction, like the instructions that come with a set of Legos. <coughs> nice, yeah. <laughs> um, hmm, yeah, a lot of, I love the Lego movie. That I, I want to work with that. Oh, uh, about the Legos? Uh, he says not the instructions that came with a uh, set of Legos. Like, so, um, yeah, some, some ideas about what exactly this is trying to lay out. So these are, that's good. So these are, there's are a lot of different questions that we could actually bring to the text, right? And we do bring to the text when we, when we read it. And we, I think one of the things we can reflect on is whether the questions we bring are the same as the ones that they were bringing when they first read this, right? This is a different culture, a different language, uh, you know, all kinds of things are different. So were they asking the same questions that we're asking now? That's a, that's a good question for us to, to kind of meditate on. But, so I want to go forward, and um, I want to point out that the question you um, come to this text with is going to shape how you think it should be read. Right? So the, the question um, that I might put out here that, that we could go with is, one, we could say, how was the world constructed? What kind of details uh, you know, uh, about the construction of the world do we need to know? And so... Maybe that would, if we were asking that question, maybe we would want a Lego manual. Maybe we, there would be other versions that we would have. Um, we might have a question of who is God, right? That might be a question that we're bringing to the text. 
and we might have a question of who are we. And each of these um, questions, like I say, should probably lead us to different ways of reading, different kinds of things that we might expect this text to do. So, um, for example, if we think that it's telling us details about how the universe was created, how the world was built, then I think we should probably, reasonably, tend to favor a literal reading method, right? Like, what is the best way to convey details about something to, to do it literally, right? Um, does that make sense? Is that, okay. So, um, yeah, if we think that's the question, then we are going to be hard-pressed to think that, uh, that it's doing something other than, than a literal method. Now, we might say, um, like Fletcher was kind of bringing up, that, well, they didn't have the language for the level of details that we are hoping that God conveys, and so that had to be put into it another form. Um, and it might have to be you know, symbolic or allegorical or something like that. But there's always going to be that pull to this. We're hoping to get literal stuff out of it, right, if we're looking for those details. If we're asking who God is, and we're hoping the text tells us who God is, then actually we should probably prefer the metaphorical reading. Because God, being an infinite, transcendent, immortal creator, there's just no way that we're going to get a handle on who God is that isn't using metaphors, right? And that's what scripture does all through. We talk about the hands and the arms and the feet of God. We don't think that God has hands and arms and feet the way we do, but those kinds of metaphors are all through scripture because that's the only kind of language we can use to grapple with an immortal, transcendent, infinite being, right? And so, yeah, if we think this is answering who God is, we would expect it to not be literal. We would expect it to be metaphorical. Um, there are all kinds of different readings. I don't mean to suggest that, that um, these are the only ones, these are the only questions, or anything like this. I'm just trying to kind of lay out uh, a sort of way of thinking about this. So um, the other reading that we might have, if we think this is trying to tell us who we are, then we might expect actually... A, a sort of different um, method, a different thing to be contained that's neither really um, literal nor symbolic or metaphorical, but actually what I would call enacted. And this is what I would call the liturgical reading. I'm going to talk a bit more about, about this. Um, so again, uh, if you come to the text with different questions, you're going to have different expectations about how this text needs to be read. And, um, and that's going to shape a lot of other things, right? So let's talk about this liturgical method because I, I expect that most of you will not have heard of this or have thought about it in this way. Um, but this is a method, like I said, that was very influential during the scientific revolution and shaped how we understand science itself. So um, let me ask some stupid sounding questions. How long is creation depicted as taking? Six days? All right. Any other answers? <laughs> Is it still happening today? <laughs> John, you always ask that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's right. 
Uh, no, six days is, is typically the, the way we would say that, right? Um, we would also maybe say, say uh, a week, right? Uh, we call it the creation week. So let me ask another stupid question. How long is a week? Okay, seven days. Okay, less than a month, right? Let me ask this question in a different way. What is a week measuring? Okay, rotation of the planet, time. Anything more specific? <coughs> Lunar cycles. Lunar cycles, okay. It's related to those, yeah. What else? Who's week? Who's week? Who's week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, yeah. <laughs> too short or too long, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so here's something interesting to me about Genesis 1. Um, there are several units of time mentioned in the text. Days, seasons, months, and years. And each of those units of time is specifically attached to a cosmic entity. Right? So this is day four, sun, moon, stars, given to what? Mark off days and seasons and months and years. And we understand how that works, right? We, a day is the cycle of the earth in its, uh, as it spins and it faces the sun. Uh, the, a year is uh, the orbit of the, uh, the earth around the sun. The, um, a, a month is related to the moon's orbit around the earth and seasons are related to the earth's tilt in relation to the sun, right? These things are marked off by uh, like observations of cosmic entities, right? And that has always been true. That's always how we've measured these units of time. So a week is not named in the text as being attached to anything. A week is only, as far as I can tell biblically, is only measured in terms of human work and God's work. Right? The only cosmic entity that marks off a week is God in this text. So we're looking at the activity of the moon, the activity of the sun, the activity of the stars, the activity of the planets, and when we come to a week, we're looking at the activity of humanity and God. So I want to suggest that this is actually... Um, a really significant fact. Um, and it's, it shapes how the uh, Jewish world actually engages all kinds of things. So this is Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. This is saying we live our lives in imitation of the work of God. God organized his work shown to us in Genesis 1 in this way, and we organize our work in the same way. So for six days we work just as God worked, and for one day we rest just as God rested. And what that does is it means that we are participating 
in the work of God, and that as we go through our lives, that we are looking at everything we do as a participation in God's work, right? The six days of creation are the six days of God's work, which we imitate in our six days of work. And so as we kind of do our work of creating and cultivating life, of organizing and orchestrating the world around us, then we come to see our work as imitating and participating in God. This is the liturgical world that Judaism inducts you into. And this is, you know, of course it's bigger than just the, the week, um, it, you know, we, we have verses about putting the, the scriptures on your doorway, uh, you know, so that you're reminded, so as you walk in and go out, that these basically form the structure of your life. And at this core level, it's saying the week itself is forming the structure of your life. The week itself is a liturgical um, pattern for worship of God. It's a liturgical pattern that changes how we understand who we are and our relationship to God and the relationship of our work to God's work. Does that make sense? Um, so this, this idea, I think, is really deeply embedded in Scripture. And um, in, the, uh, in Christian history, it has a long um, standing tradition of people thinking about this and, and working with it and trying to understand it better. So Bishop Lancelot Andrews is uh, in the uh, late 1500s, early 1600s, really prominent bishop in the Church of England. He participates in translating the King James Bible. He's, uh, his writings and prayers are still read by people today. My, my Anglican and Episcopal friends, they reference uh, him because he writes so beautifully and thoughtfully. He's a deep theological thinker. And this is his take on what this is doing. Here is a pattern set before us. We are to do only what God hath done before us. That's his, it's his reading of the fourth commandment. It's not just that we take off one day, it's that we pattern our whole world around God's creative activity. And, uh, yeah, the cultures of, like maybe Roman culture, do they have a week, or did this all do we? This all come from the Bible. Yeah, I th- I don't know the history of the week. Obviously, the day the names of the days like reflect these pagan influences, and there's some interesting um, questions about like when did the week as we know it start in terms of like was a Sunday. 2,500 years ago, the same as a Sunday now, right? We don't really know, actually, and there's, uh, we know from about 300-something that, that, that it's had a continual process. So it's like right when the Christians become uh, really influential, that's when we know that the week is, like, settled in, and we don't know before that. So, yeah, so I, I do not know, um, but... But this idea of, of there being uh, this pattern to life, obviously a big part of the Jewish um, world, big part of the Christian world since the beginning. So um, I'm going to read, uh, this is just kind of a literary analysis of, of, um, of some of the stuff that Lancelot Andrews writes. He writes, um, he, he has, like I said, these, wor- these prayers that he's written. And um, so here's um, someone reflecting on them. 
Lancelot Andrews' private prayers are one of the most outstanding achievements of early 17th century devotional prose. Built out of the most traditional devotional materials, the Bible and other ancient meditative and prayer forms, they could have been an eclectic miscellany sorry, I can't say that, uh, mis- of prayers and meditations. They are instead singular prose poems. For comparable intensity, we must look ahead to the poetry of Herbert Simple or back to the Psalms themselves, those prime models for the soul and meditation. There's the variety of their melody, which mingles notes of anguish, sorrow, and pain with praise, adoration, and joy so extraordinary that the precis are as much hymns as they are prayers and meditations. But their essential triumph, the source of their art, is temporal. So total is Andrew's realization of time as something which God fills and through which the soul moves, that theme and form are both saturated with time, and each is the mirror image of the other. The most effective part is a series of morning prayers for the days of the week where we see this same process writ large. The pattern is shaped by Genesis and the original seven days of creation. Andrews begins the prayers for each day by commemorating the work of the creation on the day it was created, light on Sunday, the firmament on Monday, and so on through Saturday when God rested. In fact, each day has its subject or work, which remakes the prayers in its particular image. And these seven days become a cosmic week, at once historic and symbolic, which begins with the first day of creation and ends with the end of time and the beginning of eternal rest and the last day of the world. Genesis thus becomes a magnifying glass through which Andrews meditates upon the whole course of time and God's mighty acts therein, or more precisely, a vessel into which all time is poured. She's saying Lancelot Andrews built his life on this pattern. He lived his week as a liturgical reenactment of the creation week. And his prayers are written to pull that forward into his own life. And so I'm, I'm po- pointing this out because he takes this seriously, both at a personal level and at all kinds of other social levels, right? This is, for him, the lens through which he understands the world because this is the view of the world that um, ha- had been given by God. And so he accounts for uh, this in his own words. God also took this orderly proceeding partly that we entering into the meditation of God's works might have, as it were, a thread to direct us orderly therein. So meditation of God's works, he's talking about creation, right? He's talking about what we call science. He's talking about investigating and understanding the world. God gives us a pattern so that we can follow that pattern and better understand creation through following that liturgical kind of set of acts. And, um, and so Andrews takes a lot of lessons from this. <laughs> One of them is, is, is from very pragmatic to um, incredibly um, profound. And one of the like, obvious kind of pragmatic lessons he takes is that, well, God worked for six days and rested for one, so you should work for six days and rest for one. And if you flip that around and you rest for six days and work for one, then you're on the wrong track. Right? So this is his uh, message to the young people in his congregation. Uh, work in the right proportion. Um, but he also has, he develops this into a whole theory of learning, of what it is to learn. To learn is to understand what God has done. And so if we want to understand what God has done, we need to follow sort of the path that God has laid out. And so as he reads Genesis 1, he sees this pattern where God first brings, uh, brings things forth and then proceeds in this work of dividing 
distinguishing, naming, and categorizing before finally moving on to the perfection. And so, for example, the light um, is brought forth, divided, separated from the darkness, and then ultimately um, we see the, the perfection of them or the completion of them in the sun, moon, and stars. Similarly, we have um, water divided uh, above and below, and then the perfection of them in the birds and the fish filling those, those domains. Right? And so he takes this as a procedure for actually engaging in all kinds of learning and knowledge. He actually calls God in, this, in Genesis 1, he says, this is God the philosopher. Now, the word they use for science at the time is natural philosophy. He's saying God the scientist. This is God depicting how science is to work. And so um, he understands this as the pattern that not only is contained in that text, but is actually played out in the rest of the scriptural story. We talked a few weeks ago about naming the animals. He thinks this is what Adam is doing. God is leading him through the same procedure that God engaged in in Genesis 1. And now Adam is looking at the creatures, naming and categorizing them just as God had named and categorized. And that's that, I think when we think about this story now, we tend to think of like, oh, he named it a cow, he named it a horse. These are like just made up names. And that's not how that has been understood historically. These names are um, names that point to their use and their function and their relationship and their distinction. And so this is scientific naming as they understand it at this time. And this actually leads to the taxonomic classification system that we have today, where we have, like, we are Homo sapiens sapiens and, and so forth. That system was specifically done in imitation of this, under the assumption that what Adam is doing here is scientific work. So it's that God has laid out a pattern which involves naming and categorizing and distinguishing. Humans are inducted into that pattern by God, and that's the pattern that we live by and use to study and gain knowledge and so forth. Um, and um, there's, some, there's some deeper history about, uh, about this kind of reading. But Lancelot Andrews, like I said, he's very influential in the early 1600s, not only influential in, um, in the King James Bible and the shape of the, the Church of England at this time, but he's actually... Um, sort of an editor for Francis Bacon's work. And Francis Bacon, as we talked about before, is the, uh, known as the father of the scientific method. His vision is what ultimately shapes the scientific institutions that are formed in this century. And his vision, his theology, is pulled from his friend Lancelot Andrews. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, good question, and it's hard to know because the way that we ask that question did not exist then, right? The, where we ask um, was, you know, did this pose a point of conflict with some other account of of origins, right? Um, I don't think he was thinking of it. Um, he had no need to get away from a literal reading. But that's, that's not what he's using it for, right? He's not using it for, these are details about how the, you know, the, when the trees came in the order or whatever. He's using it for how do I imitate God so in my actions. Yes, given the information 
I think that's fair. Like I said, he doesn't really, he doesn't go into it. Um, so, but yeah, I would assume that this is working with a, yeah, he would have no, no reason to say, to say otherwise. Um, but it's not the focus of what he does with the text. Uh, I don't know if the language has shifted or if the translation is inaccurate, but there's a word that's very disturbing in that, and that word is rescued. By, by necessary influence, church Christ term, uh, if God rested, that means he was tired, but God doesn't tire. So what, that is a very disturbing word there. Doesn't Jesus say, um, I assume it means he whipped or was finished, but that's not exactly the way we would interpret rest. Doesn't Jesus say, my father has been working to this day, and I also work, something like that? So, yeah. Um, so it, it's probably, I think that I, my take on that would be the idea that God rested. Even God is dead. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I think like God is um, taking steps to give us a pattern, right? That's the that's the idea there. Well, I think there's also when you can use it a different way, right? If something is at rest, it just means it's still. Okay. So it, I don't think it necessarily has to mean you don't have to be tired to be at rest. Yeah. Right? Trust me, I ask my eight-year-old yeah. boy to be at rest. <laughs> He's definitely not tired. So. Yeah, those are not the same. <laughs> I get I, that. That's yeah. what I said to you about two weeks ago, uh, the, I, the Jewish idea of Takuma Luke. Yeah. That's where the rest is. Yeah. That's a good point. So the, um, the Seventh-day functions really significantly during this period because they understand that rest not as just ceasing of work, but actually as, as part of, of science. It's the contemplation. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're saying God contemplates his own works. We are called to do that as well. Um, so I'll just just a couple more uh, things from from Bacon, who lays out his vision of science in a couple of different works. The the most well known is the Novum Organum, um, and this is this depicts like what I think most strongly comes to be known as the scientific method. And so he kind of makes it clear throughout that he's working with this sort of framework. He says, discoveries are, as it were, new creations and imitations of God's work. So he thinks that people creating things, as they do in the first few chapters of Genesis, is an imitation of God, and we can't escape that. He says, um, so he, he uses and applies this idea. Um, he says, uh, at first and for a time I am seeking for experiments of light, not for experiments of fruit. Following therein, as I have often said, the example of the divine creation which on the first day produced light only and assigned to it alone one entire day, nor mixed up with it on that day any material work. But in the true course of experiment and extending it to new effects, we should emanate, imitate the divine foresight and order. In like manner, we must first, by every kind of experiment, elicit discovery of causes and true axioms and seek for experiments which may afford light rather than profit. He's, he's saying, um, it, specifically, he's drawing out a principle of of how you should work in, in science, and that is you should not rush ahead to trying to do the practical thing. You should seek to understand and then to, um, and then to apply. Uh, 
And so that becomes a very significant principle in the kind of um, tradition and institution and, and cultural world he's trying to create. That we follow God and that taking it step by step, we seek light, then later we seek to apply. We seek that patience that God exhibits, stepping kind of methodically through creation. Um, and um, we've got just a couple more minutes. So uh, um, he, one of the things I think is really significant, Bacon is, is very distressed at the history of human effort. He looks back on it and he's like, it has amounted to very little. And, um, and so his assessment of why that is, is that people have failed to follow the pattern that God set out. And so he says, "Thou." this is his prayer uh, that he culminates his work with. Thou when thou turned to look upon the works which thy hands had made, saw that all was very good and rested from thy labors. But man, when he turned to look upon the work which his hands had made, saw that all was vanity and vexation of spirit and could find no rest therein. Wherefore, if we labor in thy works with the sweat of our brows, thou will make us partakers of thy vision and thy Sabbath. He's saying, we have done work, learning, advancement of knowledge on our own terms for thousands of years, and it has failed, and now we need to take up the imitation of God so that our science actually produces meaningful progress. That's his framing for the, the, the science he lays out and articulates that becomes central to um, these things. Uh, this is so much the case that he calls science the six days work. This is his label for it. Um, and um, there's a lot more that can be said here. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to um, shut this down in a timely way, as Daniel has, has uh, pointed out. But um, the, the idea that uh, people had during this area is that we learn through the imitation of God. That's, that's how God intends for us to learn. It's the only way we can learn. And God has given us patterns to teach us that we can live out. Um, and Genesis is one of these patterns, this pattern to orchestrate and structure our lives. And we learn from that lessons like God is methodical. He has a method to his work. He's patient in that method. He's diligent. He shares um, his work with others. These are very significant lessons that, that are, are help the scientific institution get off. Um, the ground. And so, and God has this process of observing, evaluating, naming, and categorizing, which becomes um, known as the, the scientific method that we use today. God also cultivates, blesses, and empowers. And this is a big thing for them, is that you can't separate these things. We think of this as science, and maybe this as technology or agriculture, and uh, they make a big point. You cannot separate these things because God did not separate them. He took his work of or organizing and naming and categorizing for the purpose of cultivating life. And if we don't do that, our science won't actually prosper. Um, so that's, that's uh, what I want to touch on today. I'll throw it back to you in the uh, minute or two we have left. Um, any questions? Is that totally just <laughs> off the, like, did any of that make sense? I mean, he's, he's looking at um, what he believes um, 
Scripture says about the, the nature of humankind, uh, in, in, like in Psalm 8, where it says, uh, you have placed um, him uh, above all creatures um, and given him charge of this. And, and Genesis 1 says, you know, for, for humanity to rule and take responsibility in creation. And he says, this is not happening. Why is it not happening? We've had thousands of years of, of Aristotle and Plato and their version of learning and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. Let's try God's version of, of learning. So the uh, organum, Aristotle had written a work about learning. And, and he's writing, Bacon is writing a new work to replace that of Aristotle, patterned on the work of God uh, in creation. Maybe Bacon was vexed because he saw the potential of what we could do in this new Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, Bacon and Robert Boyle and a lot of these early scientists, they really believed in, in an incredible way. Like if you think, you know, if you're living in the 1600s and you think things like we could fly through the air, we could cure all these diseases, we could have submarines, we could uh, project um, three-dimensional images, these things that they thought at that time, that's amazing. And they thought it because this is how they understood scripture that God had made this for humanity to do. Things that had been mysteries for thousands of years, people were figuring out, quote unquote, figuring out. Yeah. Applying science. Yeah. I think it's, well, yeah. I think it's, because I, I can't see from any, um, I think it speaks to the, the, the tension that's ever present, which is, there's sort of, what are we, what are we using this for? Yeah. Like, both the Tower of Babel bit of like, building yeah. up our own glory, yeah. but even, Today, people that, that's a tension inside of, of both science and tech discoveries of, or even like the submarine company, like who is this for? You know, yeah. if it's for our own glory or profit versus right. some other, and there's still that like ratio of, um, it reminds me, when I do like Christian business, they talk about the tradition of gleaning and not like, mm. not, not pressing the field yeah, to get every right. kernel out. Yeah. And how sort of, I don't know, to me, living somewhat in that world, I, that's how I see that same question. Yeah, and, and Bacon is very emphatic on that because if you think about it, like any effort they put out wasn't going to start bearing fruit for 50 or 100 years. We don't get Isaac Newton's uh, discoveries for quite a long time after this. It has to have built up this, um, you know, this set of work that can be pulled on. And so Bacon is saying we have to do this, um, this initial work, this patient work, um, before we can uh, before we can step up to the I next level. I guess it's like the work versus the glory bit. Too. Yeah. 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 How would you respond to this as just proof texting? Like they, they wanted science to grow, and they, they kind of saw the pre-scientific world as the dark age. I, I don't I'm not sure if they saw it that way, but but now we discovered the secret that's going right. to un- and they're, and they're proof texting, right. yeah. So the, part of the problem with that is um, there were a lot of things that were ca- better candidates for uh, taking time and effort to, make, to uh, bring glory at this point in time than science. And um, the R- Royal Society, which is founded, is, is um, it's mocked. It's part of Gulliver's Travels. Um, it's like, this is ridiculous. These people are just like, you know, like, 
spinning their wheels, doing all this kind of intellectual work that doesn't, you know, they're, they're studying these tiny little uh, specks of dust. What are they doing? You know, it's like, um, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and you see this in uh, scientists at the time. They're torn between do I spend time on science or do I spend time on alchemy? And, and alchemy and magic were compelling ideas in this period. And it took theological work to say, no, we are turning our back on that. And this is where we're going. And so, um, so I, think, I think this is the problem with thinking they were being disingenuous or, or just proof texting or something. Is like uh, they really thought this was somehow going to be the path forward, even though they weren't going to see it play out. And Lancelot Andrews is not a scientist, he's, but he thinks this is the path to knowledge, right? This kind of uh, approach to things. Um, so there's a lot of, I think the, I think so many people, when they look at the religiosity of these folks at this time, they just assume, oh, they're all faking it. They're all, you know, fake religious people. If you read their prayers, I don't think so. I think they are really sincere and, and deeply devotional. And honestly, I can compare that to Galileo, who is also Christian, but I don't find him to be that devout. Um, Galileo is, I mean, I think he's sincere, but I don't think he's super devout. These, Francis Bacon and Lancelot Andrews and these folks are incredibly devout. And Galileo, for whatever he did, he did not create any institutions that outlived himself. The institutions he were part of, that he was part of, died with, with him and his, his fellows. Um, and these people built institutions that, that lasted um, for centuries, longer than anything else in history. I, I think there's something to that. All right. Thank you all so much. Um, I, 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 for those of you, I know a lot of you have been in here for a while. I would love to talk more about any of this. So um, I know there's lots of questions that come up that uh, are not addressed in here, but I'd love to, to converse with you in any kind of context. So thanks so much.